and welcome to Question Period. I'm Joyce Napier. Evan Solomon is away this week. Today on the program, border backlash. That's why we are sticking with our principle of uh, doing everything necessary to keep Canadians first, uh, keep Canadians safe first and foremost, even as we move forward on uh, loosening restrictions. Despite increasing vaccination rates, the federal government is keeping the Canada-US border closed until July 21st. With over 75% of eligible Canadians with a first shot, should the border still be closed to non-essential travel? New York Congressman Brian Higgins gives his views from Buffalo and then road to reconciliation. It will be transformative in the way we look at our laws. Parliament adopted the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples this week in what Indigenous leaders have called a historic move. But how will this impact reconciliation across the country? We asked the Assembly of First Nations National Chief Perry Bellegarde. Plus, green collapse. Annamie Paul is under fire from her own party. After one of her three MPs crossed the floor to the Liberals, can Paul stave off a potential civil war inside the Green Party? Nick Nanos joins the scrum to break down how this could impact a potential fall election. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. It's the target we've all been waiting for. More than 75% of eligible Canadians now have one shot and 20% are fully vaccinated. That was the line in the sand the Public Health Agency of Canada set to start loosening restrictions. But despite that, the Canada-US border will remain closed to non-essential travel for another month. And there is still no clear plan on what the reopening will look like. I can tell you there is a, a tremendous uh, focus on making sure we're working together to do this as quickly and safely as possible because we all want to get back to normal, uh, which means, yes, moving quickly, but it also means avoiding any further uh, massive waves. While calls in Canada grow to reopen the border, there is also a strong push in the U.S. as the European Union lifts travel restrictions for U.S. travelers. Our border between the United States and Canada remains closed, leaving people unable to access their property and keeping loved ones separated for over 15 heartbreaking months. This move by the EU would allow my Buffalo neighbors to take a nine-hour flight to Paris, France, but they can't take a 90-minute drive to Paris, Ontario. So why do Canadians not yet have the concrete details? And what about the economic impact as businesses face another lost summer? Let's find out. Joining me now is Congressman Brian Higgins, who represents Buffalo and Niagara Falls, New York, in the U.S. House of Representatives. Congressman, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Now, you've been very vocal about wanting to reopen that border. In fact, you used some very spicy words in a tweet on Friday about how disappointed you are in the border, that the border is going to be closed until July 21st. How disappointed are you after all your long battle? Well, I'm disappointed on behalf of Canadian citizens and United States citizens. We have been told for the past 15 months that the inflection point, the game-changing moment, would be the availability of vaccines. And nobody anticipated the power of this medicine against the disease COVID. Uh, if you are fully vaccinated, 
you pose a very low risk of getting COVID or giving COVID. And that needs to be recognized. Uh, loved ones who have been separated for 15 months need to be reunited. People that have property in Canada and Canadians that have property in the United States should be able to enjoy their property so long as they are fully vaccinated. Whether it's 20% of your population or 45% of your population, the fact is if you're fully vaccinated, this is the science, these are the facts. This is what we've been told to follow for the past 15 months. And now the Canadian government, which I said is BS, I wish I could find a more artful way to say that, is not providing any guidance as to what it intends to do over the next 30 days toward the goal of a partial or full opening of the U.S.-Canadian border. So, yeah, exactly, uh, Congressman. Over about 75% of eligible Canadians have had a first shot, around 20% or more have had a second shot. How much does the pace of Canadian vaccination help your case help you argue your case in uh, to open things up well i think it's important but i also think you need to recognize the power of this medicine nobody thought that this uh this vaccine would reach the efficacy rate that it has it's 85 90 95 percent what was hoped for was about 60 percent so not only is this a very powerful uh medicine that provides immunity uh, from getting or getting COVID, it also provides a very strong medicine from all of the variants uh, associated with the coronavirus. Look, the coronavirus is probably going to be with us for the next decade or so. The question is, can we manage it well? And with these vaccines, we can manage it well. The other thing that I take great exception to is the National Hockey League. I love hockey. I played hockey in Fort Erie. But the National Hockey League gets an exemption not based on the, uh, the, the science or the data, based on the Stanley Cup playoff schedule. That's arbitrary. We're just simply saying, look at, in the United States, we have the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And the guidance on, uh, on this is very clear. If you're vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask. You don't have to socially distance. You don't have to quarantine. All of that is in the past because there's a new reality now, and it's a powerful medicine against uh, the coronavirus. And what have we been told on both sides of the border for the past 15 months? Follow the science, follow the facts, follow the data. Uh, this is what my frustration on behalf of both Canadians and Americans is with both the Canadian federal government and and the U.S. Canadian government. I was in contact with the White House yesterday and expressed this in no uncertain terms. Uh, we should take unilateral action here uh, on the American side and open the border. Oh, well, that's interesting. So when you ask that question to the White House, let's just open our border to Canadians and let the Canadians stop and do whatever, have whatever restrictions on their side of the border. What did the White House tell you? Well, that's, uh, unfortunately, that's the problem. The, the decision gets, it's, it's too much bureaucracy. Uh, nobody seems to be making a decision on this. I've spoken with the highest levels of the Biden administration. Uh, they have to bring it back to a task force. There are two people that can make this happen. The President of the United States, Joe Biden, the Canadian Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. They're men of goodwill. They have a good working relationship. When you close the border at the middle of a second tourist season 
hurting both Canadians and Americans without any vision, without any vision about what the plan is over the next 30 days to do everything they can to open that border either incrementally or more comprehensively. That is a terrible disservice to the people of Canada and to the people of the United States. So where do you put that blame, Congressman, uh, for the border still being shut down? Is it with Joe Biden, the president, or with the Canadian prime minister? I think it's the bi-national bureaucracy. I think that oftentimes good scientific information, there's a delayed effect that it has to go through this bureaucratic process and too many people are weighing in. Uh, bureaucracies are typically risk adverse. There's very little risk here because, you know, nobody's talking about herd immunity anymore because it's not as important because you have these very, very uh, potent, effective vaccines against the disease, against giving it or getting it. And if you are fully vaccinated, be you a U.S. citizen or a Canadian citizen, you pose very, very small risk. And that needs to be recognized because that's the science. That's the data. Would you consider, you know, opening your border, let Canadians in to get, say, that second vaccine? Yeah, we asked for that three weeks ago. And we have surplus vaccines that are being thrown out, that are being discarded as medical waste because they can't be used. Why can't, I mean, if you have somebody in Canada that wants a vaccine and they can't get it in their country, it seems to me that during a pandemic, an essential traveler would be one coming from Canada to the United States to get a vaccine that otherwise would be thrown out and then driving back to Canada. There's no risk in any of that. In fact, you're encouraging vaccination and you're increasing the number of Canadians that are vaccinated. New York Congressman Brian Higgins, thanks so much for sharing these thoughts with us. Have a wonderful thanks, day. Good. You too. Thank you very much. Coming up, Green Party implosion. Leader enemy Paul is coming off a tough week of political drama and in party fighting. Can she survive as leader just months ahead of a potential federal election? We'll join the Scrum with special guest pollster Nick Nanos. Stay right here with Question Period. Under attack by her own party's executives, Green leader Anami Paul defended her leadership and fired back. First woman of color, first black person, and first Jewish woman ever elected to lead a major federal party. It was never going to be a walk in the park. On Wednesday, a three-hour meeting of the Green Party executives led to six of those 15 executives to sign a document to oust her. Since her election as leader, Anami Paul has acted with an autocratic attitude of hostility, superiority and rejection reads the document obtained by CTV News. She has displayed anger in long, repetitive, aggressive monologues and has failed to recognize the value of any ideas except her own. What you're describing makes me sound like an, an angry black woman and, and that's a trope that we've heard a lot of times before. The past month I've been at a crossroads. This came only days after Fredericton MP Jenica Atwin bolted from the Green Party to join the Liberals, citing deep disagreements with the Green leader's views on Middle East politics. But Paul says she won't take responsibility for that defection, shifting instead the blame to the Prime Minister who she says recruited her MP 
and sowed division among the Greens. To the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, I say to you today, you are no ally and you are no feminist. Your deeds and your words over these past weeks prove that definitively. I am one woman that he will not push out of politics, and he can believe it. So with the Green Party in turmoil, can Anami Paul hang on to the leadership with a potential fall election on the horizon? We asked the leader of the Green Party to join us, and she declined our invitation, but we've convened the scrum to dig into the Green Party chaos. Stephanie Levitz and Tonda McCharles are reporters with the Toronto Star, and our special guest for this round is Nick Nanos, President and CEO of Nanos Research. Hello to the three of you. Nice to have you on the show. Uh, Nick, let me start with you. If the Green Party continues to spiral, how much will this benefit the NDP and the Liberal Party in a general election? Well, Joyce, Christmas has come early for the Liberals and the New Democrats on this because the Green Party actually has a lot of upside potential. Upwards of one out of every three Canadians would be open to voting Green. They have a new leader. They're a new thing on the political menu. And what the Green Party has done itself is undermined its own brand and undermined its leader at the same time. So it's not good news for the Greens or their leader. It is positive and optimistic news probably for the Liberals and the New Democrats who'd be very happy to pick up any disaffected Green voters. So, Tonda, do you think that Ms. Paul will survive this? Will it depend on whether she gets or wins a seat in the next election? What does her survival depend on? Well, for sure, her survival depends on whether she can win a seat. She hasn't set herself up for success in choosing a safe liberal seat in downtown Toronto, Toronto Centre. But look, whether she survives the time from now until an election very much depends on if they can lance the boil with inside the party. Um, it seems that her biggest challenge is not Trudeau poaching one of her MPs. It's really hanging on to uh, control within that party and her own ability to direct how the federal election campaign strategy will roll out. Right now, she's under such great internal fire that I think that's still a story yet to be told. So let's talk about that fire. Steph, what do you think of Annamie Paul's comments this week about the Prime Minister not being a feminist and about Christian Freeland being, quote, a female shield for him? Susan Delacorte, our colleague, our colleague at the Toronto Star, you know, had a really interesting take this week where she compared what was going on with Annamie Paul and her fighting with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Christopher Freeland to three other strong women who had left the Liberal government itself under sort of similar allegations in a way that Justin Trudeau, you know, his feminist credentials uh, weren't all they were cracked up to be. He didn't stand up for women. But the question becomes, you know, politics is politics. Are federal political leaders supposed to get a pass from other leaders because of their race, because of their gender, because of their ethnicity? I'm not quite sure politics works that way. There's ways to make it work that way. There's ways where, you know, the other parties could stand down in a riding where a new leader chooses to run to get, you know, to show some... I wouldn't say support, that's going a little bit too far, but giving them some room to grow, to acknowledge the moment that they are in Canadian politics. But to suggest that just because uh, Annamie Paul happens to be a woman, that for that reason Justin Trudeau shouldn't look to you know, improve his own political fortunes wherever they may be, seems a bit offside. So Nick, the environment has become a top issue for Canadian voters. Do you think the Green Party has ruined an opportunity here? 
Well, I don't think they've ruined it yet. And, you know, the thing is, is right now, Canadians are still trying to measure up the leader of the Green Party. And I think what we also saw this week was a bit of a measure of her mettle and that she's scrappy. And I think to succeed in Canadian politics, you need to be scrappy. And I know she's picked a riding to run in that's going to be difficult, but that also speaks to her boldness and confidence that she thinks that she can carry Toronto Centre. I think you have to look at the Atlantic provinces, right? I mean, polls consistently show right now that that's where the Greens are polling highest in any region in the country. And so, you know, to what extent does Annemi Paul drive or pull that vote? To what extent is it reflective of really strong local candidates like Jenica Atwin? Was it, did she win because she was a Green? For sure. But she also won because she was really prominent in the riding. The NDP have no influence infrastructure right now on the East Coast. It's very limited. For them to be able to capitalize on the Greens falling apart when that's the space where the Greens are more likely to elect a seat than anywhere else, that's a pretty big what if. No, I, I'm not sure if I agree with that because the numbers speak to the fact that BC is the best region for the Greens. In Atlantic Canada, we model out and across the country every single federal riding. That riding that was green was actually poised to turn liberal. So another way to look at it, if you just want to be a, car, a hard cold calculating numbers person is that this was a, a mercenary type move by the Green MP in Fredericton to hold on to the seat by moving over to the Liberals. And I, and I would say that actually, you know, a hard cold calculation based on politics is something that Annamie Paul ought to have considered when she chose her riding because, you know, Nick, maybe she did well in that riding but she's now lost it twice and the Greens do have strength in Ontario. If she wanted to stay in Ontario, they have strength in and around the Guelph region. They're already, there's already a representative provincially there for the Greens. So I think that she's failed to make certain calculations. I think the, you know, the, the weeks ahead are going to be really interesting. I mean, the Greens are asking of her also very unusual and frankly kind of bizarro things. I mean, asking her to denounce uh, asking a black Jewish leader to denounce her Jewish assistant. I found very strange, I find it reminiscent of communist China, asking people to denounce publicly and repudiate people publicly. It is, it's theatrical, it's performative, and I think she's got to get a rein on the inside of her party right now and show she can lead it before she can inspire confidence in Canadians, whatever writing she wants to be in. Yeah, but I want to ask you, because... Green MPs Elizabeth May, the former leader, and Paul Manley have remained silent throughout this. So what do you think this means for her? I mean, we know she doesn't have a seat in Parliament. How difficult is it if your own two MPs, I mean, it's not like a lot of them, are not supporting you, or if they are, they're remaining silent. I'll start with you, Steph. How difficult is it for her to get out of this if those two MPs, those two sitting MPs, are not supporting her? They would be obvious natural allies for her, and in some way political surrogates, right, to go, at, especially with Elizabeth May. I mean, I, I think it was Annemie said on, on uh, you know, CTV's Power Play earlier this week that Elizabeth May was the reason Annemie Paul got into Green Party politics in the first place. If they're not willing to outwardly hold her back, the optics of it aren't particularly good. The Green Party, though, we should also remember, does politics a little bit differently than a lot of other parties. They have a strong focus on a consensus model. They really try and bring everybody together in, in, in a bit of a more 
collegial, shall we say, collective way that doesn't always fly in the face of someone who's trying to assert themselves as a new leader, and there's a lot of resistance to change. Annamie Paul herself said that. If she's trying to rebuild and rebrand the Green Party, it becomes for her a bit of a calculus as well. I mean, how, how much does she need to hew to Elizabeth May? How much deference does she need to show to her? And, and can she surmount the May effect, which is the idea that the Green Party remains, in many people's minds, the party of Elizabeth May? Okay, uh, we've got to take a quick break. Thanks to Nick Nanos for joining us. Steph and Tonda will be back later in the program. But when we come back, the Senate approves a bill to implement the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. How can this help reconciliation and how should the federal government implement the legislation? Assembly of First Nations National Chief Perry Bellegarde joins us next. Stay right here with Question Period. called a milestone for First Nations and Indigenous peoples on the path towards reconciliation. This week, the Senate passed Bill C-15, aimed at aligning Canadian law with the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. We have to address the legacy of injustices, including systemic racism and discrimination, that continue to hold back Indigenous peoples across Canada. It's easy to be pessimistic or cynical about the future of reconciliation. But I believe the passage of C-15 represents a sign of progress and a reason to be optimistic. The UN first passed the declaration in 2007 to establish a universal framework of minimum standards for the well-being of Indigenous peoples. It affirms that Indigenous peoples are equal to all other peoples while recognizing the rights of all peoples to be different to consider themselves different and to be respected as such. But the vote was not unanimous and the bill also got a rough ride in the House of Commons from some Conservative MPs. They argued it would give Indigenous people a veto over natural resource projects. The bill will soon receive royal assent and become law ahead of a potential federal election later this year. How will this help reconciliation and what is the response to those who oppose it? Joining us now is Assembly of First Nations National Chief Perry Bellegarde. Always nice to see you, Grand Chief. Welcome to Question Period. On a more, on a more practical you know, level, I want to ask you, how does this change the life of an Indigenous person in Canada? Just one concrete example. Basically, all the laws and policies that deny existing Aboriginal and treaty rights will have to be changed to get in line with recognition of Aboriginal rights and title and jurisdiction. That's going to be a huge piece because we've got, for example, four pieces of legislation, the comprehensive claims policy, specific claims policy, additions to reserve policy, and the inherent right to self-government policy are all currently based on termination of rights, title and jurisdiction, not recognition of rights, title, and jurisdiction. So with passing of C-15, the UN Declaration, all laws and policies will have to get in line. As well, Joyce, it calls for a national action plan to end racism and discrimination. And we know there's racism and discrimination in the healthcare system and in the justice policing system. So there's got to be systemic change in both those systems as well. How, you know, how do you see this happening? Is it, would, it, would it be something that would happen gradually would there be discussions on every law? Um, you know, you look at this 
to the layman, it looks like an enormous amount of work that, would, that could take years and years. Well, that's why we put a two-year time frame in. There's got to be a two-year. and done. This, this national action plan has to be done in partnership and collaboration, communication with First Nations people. That's very key. And so we've got two years for the federal government, the Crown, to get this done in partnership with our people. So there is a process and a plan in place. And it really is indeed a roadmap to reconciliation. See, but the, the Conservatives in the House and in the Senate oppose the bill. And uh, a number of Conservative Premiers as well also, you know, opposed uh, this legislation. What does that say about reconciliation in Canada when one of the major parties does not support this? Well, I think they were concerned with free prior informed consent you know, and uh, some of the premiers are concerned this is going to have an impact on land and resource development in the provinces and territories. We've said before, when you involve the rights and title holders involved in any major development uh, across any sector, that makes good sense. Involve the rights and title holders sooner than later. That creates economic certainty, economic stability. And so that's the key going forward. So this is a good thing for provinces and territories in Canada. Um, we still, we'll, we're still available to help educate people, premiers, leaders uh, of the Conservative Party, about the, the good things about this bill and how it really will benefit not only First Nations people but all Canadians to really embrace reconciliation going forward. I'd like to move to, um, uh, to the issue, uh, sad issue of residential schools this week. Uh, the Ontario uh, government promised $10 million to help find and locate the remains of children who died at residential schools in Ontario who may be buried on the grounds there. There are 21 residential schools in Ontario. So do you think this is enough money to get the job done? Everything is a start, Joyce. And we've, you know, the federal government announced 27 million. Provinces are stepping up to the plate. We have over 130 plus residential school sites where little ones have been buried, unmarked graves, mass graves. It's a, it's a genocide of our people. So governments are hearing and listening and they are providing resources. I would just say that once needs have been identified and once the chiefs and council and the elders and survivors come forward with a plan to get this work done, that the financial, and the financial resources and the human resources should be put in place based on needs. And so everything is a start. When, but if you base everything on needs, once they're identified, they should be met, whether it be federal government, provincial governments, are, are, you know, working collaboratively together to make sure that this work gets done. So what are you hearing, uh, uh, Perry Bellegarde, on the ground? What are those needs? What are, you know, these communities telling you? Uh, how do they want to go forward? They want to go forward very respectfully. This is uh, spiritual. This is sacred. This is human beings, little ones, children that have lost their lives, that have been killed and buried and put into to unmarked graves. So there's a, a sacredness of this work. There's a spirituality of this work. So the elders have to be brought together. The families, the community, the survivors have to be brought together. Uh, the, the right technology has to be brought together. So this will be uh, very careful work going forward, spiritual work going forward. We just got to make sure it's done in a very respectful way. Grand Chief Perry Bellegarde, thanks so much for sharing these thoughts with us. Thanks for the opportunity, Joyce.
Still to come, despite climbing vaccination rates, travel restrictions at the Canada-U.S. border will remain for at least another month. How much more will businesses lose? And what about uneven restrictions across Canada? Up next, we'll speak to Business Council of Canada President Goldie Hyder and the National President of Unifor, Jerry Diaz. Stay right here with Question Period. Canada will be extending its restrictions on international travel until July 21st. Yes, another month. That means the Canada-U.S. border will remain closed to non-essential travel, but the government has signaled that it will wait until tomorrow to give more details on how fully vaccinated Canadians can start to travel. But are Ottawa and the provinces even on the same page about a partial reopening? And are Canadians ready for long lines and frequent testing when the reopening starts? Let's find out. To talk about that, let's bring in Jerry Dias, the national president of Unifor, and Goldie Hyder, president and CEO of the Business Council of Canada. Good morning to you, gentlemen. Welcome to Question Period. Very nice uh, to see you. Um, Jerry, I want to start with you. Yet another month where the border is going to be closed. What's your reaction? No, I'm frustrated, as, as are so many other people. The question becomes, what happens if you're a Canadian that has had both vaccinations? We've been told it's all about vaccinations, it's all about being safe. So look, I'm fine that if you have double vaccines, uh, if you have to test, you have to test, you have to you know, even isolate for a short period of time while you're waiting for a negative result. But please, there has to be an element of common sense into this. But the other side of this is that our economy has taken a huge beating. I've been trying to have meetings with auto executives, for example, that are looking to invest billions in this country. And they can't get across the border unless they're isolating for two weeks. So there has to be an element of common sense injected in this entire discussion. And I'm hope that we're going to hear that tomorrow as the government lays out their new plan. Uh, my message to your viewers is you want your life back? Go get vaccinated. Get fully vaccinated and then demand the freedom that I think you deserve for being fully vaccinated, because either we trust the vaccines or we don't. And the business consequences are very real. Jerry alluded to it. Those are probably my members uh, trying to make those investments, both on the Canadian side and yeah. the American side of the Business Council, in those billions. So it has economic consequences, because we're an integrated economy, Joyce. Having people locked up for 15 months, they've done their part. Now it's time to give them more freedom. And, and there are many politicians um, uh, uh, state politicians in the U.S. were really upset about the border being closed for another month. You know, could you see a situation, listen, we spoke to Congressman uh, Brian Higgins, um, who's even tweeting about it. He's been angry about it. He's been trying to lobby about it, saying, actually, it's on both sides. There's a lot of red tape. There's a lot of bureaucracy. You don't really know who makes the decision. There's so many different levels. Could you see a situation, Jerry, a dias where the U.S. you know ends up by unilaterally reopening its side of the border. Well, I think there's going to have to be some cooperation, and there has to be a cohesive approach. So I can see them forcing Canada's hand because of where they're at with their state of their vaccinations. But Canada is there as well. About a month ago, the U.S. was so much ahead of us. Today, we're there. And if you look at the millions of vaccines that are coming in. We should be thinking and saying concretely, on this day, this is when the border is going to be open. Okay, if you've had both vaccinations, you're good. 
Don't worry about the quarantine. Get rid of the foolish three-day stay in the hotels. You can go home. You're fine. So the expert advisory panel put together by the government said, look, okay, there has to be some adults in the room. We need some intelligent uh, vision as to how we're moving forward. But that's what we need to see, and we need to see it quickly. So the U.S. is moving quickly because of where they're at and their comfort level. We should be there as well. I don't know why we're being reluctant when the science is saying we not only are going to look at baby steps today, uh, we can be looking at being much more aggressive than progressive. So look, I'm no different than anybody else, Joyce. I'm, my preoccupation is about safety, period. We have to control the variants, so we all understand all of this. But if you follow the science and see what the logical next steps are, we should be in step with science. And, and you know, one wonders, like, what are they afraid of, uh, of uh, Goldie, if, in fact, you know, these vaccines are effective? Um, yes, maybe test people who are coming in, even doubly vaccinated. But there's a real uneven situation across the country. In Alberta, looks like they're going to be fully reopened around Canada Day. But in Ontario, you can't even get a haircut until after Canada Day. So how difficult has this period been for businesses trying to navigate the various rules? I'm assuming you're not commenting on my hair, Joyce, because it is a source of stress for me, let me tell you. But yes, it is bizarre that we're living in this environment. And this is why we're saying a responsible, clear plan that puts safety first. Because I think what Canadians realize is vaccinations are key here. You know, Jerry talked about variants. The best thing we can do, again, is get vaccinated. We should be shooting to be number one in the world, and we can be. We have the supply. Why doesn't the government take credit for that and say, look, we've got the supply. We're going to get the levels up to 80, 90 percent. The best way to incent that behavior is to say, here's the reward. Here's what you get if you're fully vaccinated. Canadians are looking at their television stations down in the United States and saying, listen, Last year, we mocked them for the disastrous way in which they managed the pandemic out of the gate. But you know what? In the last 120 days or so since the new administration taken over, they've really done a phenomenal job. And Canadians are saying, I want that. How is it that they can go to a hockey game or a baseball game or so forth? And I can't do that. I can't get a haircut, let alone do any of those things. So I, I really think Canadians have moved beyond their governments. And I, I think Canadian governments have to be very careful to not get too far behind where their public is. Their public's moving on. Their public wants to be able to get a reward for this, this uh, the vaccine. And I'm hopeful that after this initial phase one announcement, which probably deserves, as uh, some say, a one-handed clap, uh, we can give them a two-handed clap because they'll move quickly uh, into the next phase that really opens things up for the vaccinated because I do believe that the public is ready yeah. for that. Goldie Hyder, Jerry Diaz, thanks so much for sharing these thoughts. I hope that next time we talk, uh, the border will be open and we'll all be traveling. Have a so great do we. day. So do we. Thank you, Joyce. Bye-bye. Thank you, Joyce. Have a great day. Coming up, after weeks of wondering and worrying, yet another change for Canadians who got AstraZeneca. Is it the right call to recommend that people who got a first shot of AstraZeneca get Pfizer or Moderna for their second shot? We put that to Dr. Isaac Bogoch and the Scrum after the break. Stay right here with Question Period. another change to AstraZeneca advice from the National Advisory Committee on Immunization. The emerging evidence suggesting better immune responses when a first dose of the AstraZeneca vaccine is followed by a second dose of the Pfizer, BioNTech or Moderna mRNA vaccines. Despite the change, Dr. Teresa Tam says Canadians who got AstraZeneca made the right choice. 
But what I would say is that those who've received two doses of AstraZeneca COVID shield vaccine, um, you've uh, been provided with good protection against infection. So what does this say about public health communication on vaccine effectiveness and safety throughout the pandemic if another change yet has been made to AstraZeneca advice? Is this the result of evolving science or bad communication strategy by the government or maybe a bit of both? Plus, with Public Safety Minister Bill Blair extending Canada-U.S. border restrictions until July 21st, how will this play out with our U.S. counterparts who are calling for its immediate reopening? And how will the federal government weigh expectations from the U.S. and the provinces who want clarity on this file? Now, to answer all that, the Scrum returns. Tonda McCharles and Stephanie Levitz, reporters with the Toronto Star, are back. And our special guest this round is infectious disease doctor Isaac Bogoc. Hello again to Tonda and Steph. Dr. Bogoc, welcome to Question Period. So what would you say now to Canadians who got their first shot of AstraZeneca? Should they continue with AstraZeneca? or choose an mRNA vaccine for their second dose, as NACI recommends, you can understand people's confusion. Absolutely. There, and, uh, you know, obviously we've seen lots of different changes to AstraZeneca policy throughout the course of the pandemic. First, it was for people less than 65, then for people uh, over the age of 50, then for over the age of 65, then for people over the age of 40. Then we don't recommend it as a first dose. <laughs> now, it, so yeah, obviously, there's been a lot of changes over time. I think it's also fair to say that the pace of scientific discovery is rapid, and the policy has to adjust with the pace of scientific discovery. Having said that, it's also fair that we can communicate in an effective manner. We can communicate uncertainty. We can communicate risk. And you know, we, we when we look at the content of the recommendations, it actually is pretty reasonable. But I think. Throughout the course of the pandemic, there certainly is much to be desired for in terms of skillful communication to build trust in the vaccines, to build trust in the vaccine program, to build trust in public health initiatives so that people are aware that, you know what, you are getting something reasonable, but also that this may change over time. I mean, Steph, millions of Canadians were told to get the first shot that was available to them, and many took AstraZeneca. Do you think they have a right now to be you know, angry at, at NACI and Health Canada for the way their recommendations have evolved and been communicated? I think being communicated, absolutely. The, the, science of, the science of evolution, the evolution of science is what it is. The evolution of this research is what it is. We can be grateful to some extent that NACI seems to be moving fast in terms of responding to the latest science and the latest research on all of these vaccines. The question becomes, you know, when they sat down at the outset of all of this, when they looked at the overall vaccine strategy, when they looked at the vaccine portfolios, the different challenges with the vaccines, where was the communications team gaming this all out? How are we going to talk to people? How are we going to communicate this? And how are we going to put at the forefront of all of this that science changes? And, you know, one wonders to the extent to which they're a little bit, they got a little bit shy based on take what happened with masking. For example, the science evolved on masking. Initially, let's recall, it was, ah, well, you know, maybe we need a mask. And then, all, you know, flash forward, what, a year? We're all masked all the time everywhere we go. There was a lot of blowback on 
on the federal government's health scientists for the way they handled that decision. At that moment in time, a crisis risk communication strategy needed to be drawn up to deploy to account for the fact that in the course of a pandemic, you know, the expression they kept using is they're flying the plane while it's still being built, and they need some communications pilots on that plane. Not that many of them, it seems, uh, on certain days. Now, Tana, for, for those people who got uh, AstraZeneca, they're seeing a story this week uh, that you can't go to a Springsteen show or a Broadway show in New York City. How is this going to play out politically if those who were told that taking this vaccine was a way to get back to normal will be barred from certain activities, even if they mix uh, AstraZeneca with an mRNA vaccine? So look, I think that all of that is a work in progress. Um, let's remember that uh, the U.S. may be, for now, not recognizing the AstraZeneca vaccine because they haven't approved it. But the, the president, Joe Biden, just got back, as did Trudeau, Justin Trudeau, from a summit in the United Kingdom where that country is entirely vaccinated with AstraZeneca. Well, for the most part, right? And so I think that we saw a signal on Friday from the Prime Minister that all of the countries are still talking about how to recognize each other's vaccines. And it seems the way they may be leaning is to go with vaccines that have been authorized and approved by the WHO, the World Health Organization. Well, Dr. Bogash, you know, talking about travel, you know, Canada and the U.S. are set to meet next week to discuss a phased reopening of the Canada-U.S. border. Now, from your medical perspective, because we all want the border to open, we want life to go back to normal, but we have to follow the science. What would a safe reopening of the border look like? Well, it's a good, good point because there is a panel, uh, full disclosure, I'm on it, that has put forward uh, recommendations of how we can reopen the border and start to re-engage in, in international travel while we're in this interim period where so, you know, a growing number of Canadians have a single dose of a vaccine and hopefully a two doses of a vaccine, plus a growing population in the, in, in the world will have access to vaccines. And quite frankly, I think it's fair to say that, you know, you have to, number one, continue to screen for variants of concern. You've got to know uh, what they are and what's circulating in your country. But the other thing is currently to date, all the vaccines that are at least approved in Canada uh, have very, very good efficacy uh, and effectiveness, I should say, in uh, protecting people against uh, COVID-19 infections, of course, against severe illness from the virus. So I think it's fair to say that it would be very reasonable to allow vaccinated people much more uh, easy travel across the border uh, without you know, having to quarantine or without uh, having to do pre-departure tests. You know, I think a swab at the border is still reasonable to do just to, so we have a good understanding of what virus is circulating out there. And then, of course, there are recommendations that you know, the, the federal government is certainly considering for what you do with a single uh, vaccinated person and, and for people without a vaccine and how long the quarantine should be. So they have those recommendations, and I think they're you know, hopefully going to look into those and, and, and start integrating them into real-world practice soon because you know, a, a significant number of Canadians are already double vaccinated, and that number is skyrocketing. So we're going to have a huge proportion of our population with two doses of a vaccine in the coming weeks, and I think many Canadians are itching to travel. Yeah. Let's let's look at those I statistics. Wait, 75% or over 75% of eligible Canadians now have had one vaccine, and over 20% of those eligible Canadians have had their second shot as well. So, you know, those are, you know, very comforting numbers 
uh, Steph, Canada is being pressured by the U.S. to reopen the border. How should the government handle this, uh, you know, particularly with the provinces who need to be consulted on this? What boggles the mind is why we're asking the question of how the federal government ought to be handling this. Like, why was there no strategy at the outset when the border closed? Maybe not originally, right off the top, everyone's scrambling. But as we've gotten into uh, more of a swing of things with vaccines, all of these things, where was the strategy to reopen the border? Why didn't it exist? Why, you know, Dr. Bogosh and his panel, they submit the report to the federal government in early May. It's made public late May and still bupkis. And so we shouldn't still have to be asking the question. There is a plan in place. There is a strategy. There are demands from the provinces for certain things, certain other metrics. They want to see a longer-term plan. So how about we just get one? If the sticking question, and part of it is the sticking question, is the issue of vaccine passports or some kind of vaccine certification. The feds have signaled, you know, they're well ahead on that. They should be even farther ahead. So the question sort of goes back to what is their hold up? What is the sticking point, the problem that is is seeing them hold back from producing some kind of plan. Tonda, you asked the Prime Minister that question on Friday at his news conference. Um, why don't you have a plan already or at least a timeline? Well, the mind boggles. He actually couldn't answer that question. He defended the pace of vaccination in the country. Great, that's underway. But as early as 2020 in the spring, in the first wave, Justin Trudeau was telling Canadians vaccines are the way out. And so here we are more than a year later and six months after vaccines started rolling into the country so we knew vaccination was going to be the way out we knew vaccination would be have to be verified at borders for travelers and yet we still have no idea where we're going to up well they're they're signaling it's going to be for inbound Canadian travelers coming back into the country, you can use the Arrive Can app that they stood up during pandemic to upload your provincial certificate. But what about outbound Canadian travelers? What is the national stamp of approval? What is the pan-Canadian certification of vaccination that will allow Canadians to travel abroad? No idea. Um, there's not even a clear signal that there will be one. And there's not a clear signal about what the provincial objections are to that. Everybody's agreed on the parameters of sharing data and that it needs to be encrypted and it needs to be kept private. So what's the holdup? There is no answer. Well, I'm sure we're going to be talking about this uh, for a while. So that's all the time we got for this week. Steph, Tonda and Dr. Bogoc, thanks for joining us this week and thank you for watching the program. Evan will be back next week and we'll see you again in seven short days.